And I remember talking about this in my interview and the head teacher um, said to me afterwards, you know, is this something that really means a lot to you? And I said, yeah, it does. Because this this and everything about this book, about being LGBTQ plus and just being different, um, you know, from the sort of social norms um, is who I am. You know, this is this is who I am. I am. I, I feel like I am the microcosm of, of difference. Hi, I'm Joseph. Hello, my name's Adam. Welcome to Pride and Progress, a podcast that celebrates the progress of LGBT plus inclusion in education. Each week, we speak with LGBT plus educators and allies. We hear their stories, discuss what they are doing to make their educational spaces more inclusive, and celebrate the power of diversity. This week, we are joined by Scott Cartwright. Scott uses he, him pronouns and is soon to be a qualified teacher of English, having undergone his initial teacher training over the last year. Following the completion of his BA Honours in Comedy Writing and Performance in 2018 and several jobs within the arts industry along the way, he is proud to have returned to his former school in 2020 for training and now to be continuing his journey with them post-teacher training. He is a huge advocate for increasing awareness and discussion of diversity, equality and inclusion in the classroom. Welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So there's a few things in that introduction that I'm really excited to unpick with you today. But the first thing that stood out for me is a degree in stand-up comedy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was one of the weird things when I was searching for degrees during my sixth form days. And I was sort of looking, I was like, right, let's try and find degrees I can do. And I thought, oh, we know I love performance. Um, you know, I love writing. I was like, you know what? I really love comedy, but I bet there's no degrees out there. So to my surprise, went and did a Google search and all of a sudden, BA Honours Comedy Writing and Performance comes up at University of Salford and I thought wow okay I need to find out more about this um, and so luckily for me as well um, one of the things I was interested in was maybe trying a little bit of stand-up comedy but equally as well to actually sort of unpack things a little bit more in terms of exploring comedy what could the concepts mean um, and also doing some original writing as well so that was something that the degree allowed me to do so not only for those that wanted to pursue the route of stand-up comedy, they could go down that route and perform it at the likes of the Frog and Bucket in Manchester um, and the Comedy Store. Uh, but equally as well, those that wanted to write as well could just really sort of express their ideas. So, and I think one of the great things about some of the university modules is that you can almost tailor it to your own experience. So if you wanted to get a wide range of things, you could. But equally, if you wanted to focus on one thing as well, you could do that as well. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was a great three years and... Uh, I have a lot of respect. It was um, it was quite sad actually. One of my tutors who taught me on the degree recently passed away, and she was one of the great, great tutors at Salford that lots of people remember. Um, but yeah, it's so it always every time I always think about the degree, I always think about her in a Vivian Westwood tartan suit, like an absolute queen, um, and thinking, you know what, like Denise, like I remember this degree because of you. So yeah. Denise sounds incredible and the that degree sounds incredible and Adam and I were talking a bit earlier about sometimes as like a primary school teacher I do feel a bit like a stand-up comic at times and I think it's because like I so I teach six-year-olds so the bar for comedy is really low I'm not actually funny but sometimes I do feel a bit like that in class. Yeah and I think it is one of those it's sort of the weird things as well as a lot of the time you'll hear people say you know that teaching is an act um, and that you are basically an actor who has got that script you've got your sort of props and you've got things that you can be performing with I mean you can see what I'm doing now I'm talking obviously people can't see what I'm doing but I'm talking with my hands and this is something that just comes as a part and parcel of being a performer 
Um, and I think when you, like, for example, with myself, because I'm teaching 11 to 16 year olds as well, it's, I can almost feel what you're saying, Joseph, as well. You feel like that you're constantly sort of on the performing side of things and that you almost need to be a little bit witty sometimes as well with some of them, sort of keep them sort of on the ball, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of those skills are quite um, transferable, aren't they? Because we were saying for the podcast, like not only trying to be funny, but like reading the room and timing and knowing your audience and all those things. And those skills are really transferable. Oh, absolutely. And I think when you when you know something's not working, that's when you know it's the time to move on. And I think there's that's something that I've definitely come to grasp over the last year because you almost forget to distinguish the two. And I think once I'd actually come to realise that actually, do you know what? It is, it is an adaptive practice, both in the sense of teaching and performing comedy or performing anything, is knowing that when your audience started to switch off, move on, like straight away, that needs to be, you know, by Felicia to this you know so <laughs> yeah definitely yeah because I you know comedians talk about losing the audience and as teachers we talk about losing the class don't we and those things are exactly the same yeah oh yeah absolutely and you know I think one of the things with I mean with an adult audience you sort of tend to find out via you know <laughs> the use of uh, insults and expletives um, <laughs> whereas with uh, with students you can just see that sort of gradual switch off behind the eyes and think oh no <laughs> And sometimes insults and expletives as well. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So stand-up comedy, um, not the most natural progression to then go into English teaching. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a bit of a weird one, really, because I was when I was still working over in Salford, I was uh, working for an arts um, company. So I was working for the Lowry in Salford, which obviously is a huge entertainment uh, centre, which has got theatre, gallery. Um, and I was working within the sales department there. And I was actually working at a management level. So it seems sort of weird to think going from a sales management level to being in the classroom. So I basically made the decision to, to leave there at the start of 2019. I came back home to Chesterfield. Uh, I got a job with the local council um, working in visitor information. Um, and then a position came up within the theatres um, side of things as well. And they asked me if I was be interested. So I thought, oh, yeah, you know what, I'll do this. And around the time when I was picking these things up, I was starting to think about, well, what are my priorities in my career? Do I want to be doing um, theatre sales? Because I loved it and I loved the customer interaction. I think seeing the customers, seeing their genuine excitement for theatre um, and entertainment and performance is something that's, you know, also something that's big and matters to me in my heart as well. But also made me sort of think, well, what do I want from life? And I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. That was something that has sat with me sort of since day dot, really. And so I wanted to obviously reset my priorities and go, right, well, I wanted to be a teacher. So what can I start to do about this? And a job that actually came up at my former school in what's more commonly known now um, in the industry as a cover supervisor. So I'd gone and applied for that. But at the same time, I thought, well, actually, why not think about doing my teacher training? Because, again, it's something I'd considered during my degree and potentially staying over in Manchester and doing that. But now I was back home, I was thinking, well, do you know what? I'd love to do it. And if I was to train anywhere, it probably would have been at my former secondary school. So I was going out, I was looking for opportunities. I found some of the local skits that were uh, that were in the area, made some phone calls, spoke to people. Um, I spoke to the director of the skit, who I'm currently training under now, and I was completely blown away. I was like, do you know what? This is, this is what I want to do. And this is, this is an opportunity I feel like I would be a fool for not taking. Um, because this is something that I could see myself doing for you know the rest of my life. So yeah, and then basically the the journey started there. You go through the whole interview process as you do, getting acquainted to UCAS again of all things, 
um, writing the statements out. I had a lovely uh, teacher training advisor, which of course anybody can pick up if they're going into teacher training, they can get that teacher training advisor. Um, I had a lovely lady called Nina um, and it just made me feel calm and collected about the whole process because I think it can seem quite stressful going into it because it seems like a bit of a career change. But as we've said, there are a lot of transferable skills you can take from working within the arts and working in performance and then going into the classroom. So just sort of having that and putting myself at ease, I think, massively helped. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's all been it's all been sort of an upward an upward journey since then. So I'm, I'm excited to see where September and beyond takes me. That's lovely to hear, Scott. We've had quite a lot of conversations with teachers who talked about when they initially started teacher training or going into the profession, they found it difficult whether to how to start or engage with those conversations, how to speak about those things with the students. Had you kind of pre-prepared how to address these things or were you just thinking, I'll be my authentic self and, you know, we'll see what happens? Yeah, yeah. I think you've definitely got to be sort of on the forefront of thinking, you know, you've got to prepare yourself just in case these kind of awkward conversations might come up. Um, but equally as well, I think I sort of went in thinking sort of the same as myself, really, when I was coming into my own, um, you know, when I was 18, moving away to university, I was sort of thinking, well, no, people, people are going to see me for me. And if they don't like that, well, that's, that's their problem, I suppose, not mine. And if they want to be a part of my journey, if they want to sort of have that continued, um, you know, working relationship, it's something that we need to work on sort of educating and, and raising that awareness for and that's not necessarily a problem that's their fault it's just a case of we've not has been we've not been as sort of forward thinking I suppose in the education that we've had in schools which I think is why it's great that as part of the sort of as the RSE curriculum and PSHE that we're starting to bring that more into the forefront um, I definitely think there's something that still needs to be done on a wider curriculum level it's not just assigning it to that one thing where you might do it for an hour a week or you might do it for a month or for even a week um you know i know there's there's lots of great things out there like lgbtq plus history month um you know black history month um, and of course we've just had schools diversity week as well and they're fantastic things for us to do to start to raise that awareness and start to sort of sow the seed but what we need to be doing now going forward as lgbtq plus educators um, you know, and, and whether this is something that senior leaders, whether they're LGBTQ plus educators or allies, we all need to be thinking and being a little bit more conscious about what exactly we are teaching to the students. Um, you know, or even if it's what we're teaching and maybe linking to wider reading um, is something that I definitely want to be a bit more conscious of, I suppose. I think it's brilliant that you're at this point already in your career where because because the things you're talking about and the ideas that you just discussed in your answer there are things that that maybe I think about now but certainly in my first year of teaching I was kind of worlds away from that that kind of understanding around kind of um around inclusive education we're we're big um advocates of school diversity week we've we interviewed Dominic from just like us on the podcast previously how did that go last week in your school yeah, I think it went down really well. Um, they had a range of sort of different activities that they showed in challenge time in the morning for the students. Um, I have a year seven form, so I was sort of able to, to talk them through the stuff. And I, I found it quite lovely, actually. I was able to sort of talk to these as younger students and they were able to sort of take ideas in. Um, you know, I've, I've had individuals around school that know, for example, we had a quiz at the end of the week, which was designed by a former student and it had a whole section about the flags um, so, for example, I think there was the pansexual, asexual and transgender flag. Um, and the fact that some of my form were able to sort of pick those out and say, oh, we think it's this, we think it's this. And I thought, wow, 
like look how far we've come to say that for myself as a year 10 student for example way back when I wouldn't have never felt comfortable enough to have been so confident in saying oh yeah that's this that and the other for fear of being saying oh why do you know so much about that you know oh, oh they must be gay or oh, you know and, and sort of like going down the sort of the insults and and sort of bullying route really I think it's just nice that the kids the kids don't really mind like this is the one thing I think I've really sort of picked up on over the last year is that the kids really are not that fussed in that sense it's not it's not like a big deal for them anymore I think wow what progress we must have made then over the last well as long as I've been away from school you know in terms of in terms of progress I think that's great I think it also speaks to the teacher you are Scott so just for full disclosure, Scott works in the skit I work at. So I observed you on Friday, Scott, and I've observed you several times. But the culture that you've created in your classroom has got a lot to account for for that. Because on Friday, for example, you did this lovely starter when you talked about the different reasons why people might be marginalised. And it was with, you were with a year eight group. And they were putting their hands up and saying these incredibly sophisticated answers. Like it might be because they're sexuality. They might be marginalised for these reasons and so on. And you've created a room where not only is it safe to talk about it, but it's not something where it's taboo or it's an awkward conversation. It's something that people can engage with. And I think that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of the things to sort of say to them all is that if people are unsure about something, regardless of whether it's to do with LGBTQ+, or if it's something else, if they're unsure, I'd much rather them ask those questions. Because at the end of the day, how can we learn if we don't ask questions? You know, and I think that's that's one thing that really lies at the ethos of, of who I am as a teacher and like Adam was saying, I think I'd, I'd, do, I'd like to think that that is part of who I am as a teacher, that I'm successful at creating that fully inclusive environment. And you've got the brilliant rainbow mask and you've got the rainbow watch and various other bits and pieces. Have they led to in, uh, conversations in the classroom? Have they sparked important conversations? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think <laughs> it's quite interesting, actually. I had a, uh, a year nine group who I was talking to and I'd set them up on a task. And I remember going across to one of them and I was checking in about how they were doing and I remember them looking down at my watch and I was thinking, oh, this could be an interesting conversation. What's going to come up from this? Um, and they just looked up at me and the student and said, um, oh, uh, Mr. Cartwright, can I just ask you a question? I was like, OK, yeah, go on. I was like, I was preparing myself. I was like, mm, let's see. And she's like, are you gay? And I was like, yes, I am. I was like, now, have you finished question two? <laughs> just, I think just how she sort of did it. And I think the reaction that I got from that student as well, they were just sort of sat there, they were like, all right, okay. And then, you know, they were sort of, then they gone, went back to like question two and like they'll go for it. And I just thought the fact that I could feel so confident to do that, obviously I wanted to make sure that the onus was more on them making progress in the lesson. But equally, I didn't want to not answer the question and say, that's not a relevant question. You know, you need to be doing your work. Because I think it's important for me and I think by me being so blunt in that way, I think it almost makes them think, oh, wow, you know, like he's not he's not thinking this is taboo. You know, like this is, he feels confident. And that's that's the case. Like I'm not, like I said before, I'm not, I'm not going to be apologetic for, for being who I am. I think it really shouldn't be, but it is quite a brave thing to do. Um, it shouldn't have to be a brave thing to do. We shouldn't talk around bravery in, um, in, in this situation. But I, I think it, it, in the education system, even as it is at the moment, it is still a brave thing to do, to, to be that authentic with your class and to be that honest. And I suppose the interesting thing for you is that you talked about how your former school and the area that you grew up in was kind of not as not very diverse space when you were growing up there. And now kind of fast forward to you being in that space as an educator, living authentically and living honestly. I just wondered, what does that feel like kind of personally for you? 
I think for me, it feels great because it sort of allows me to be the educator, not necessarily the educator I needed to be when I was younger, but in, I, it is in the same sense. It's, it's a weird sort of feeling because it's like I had a lot of great teachers who I could be sort of myself with without being out um, as, as a gay man. Um, but I think we all sort of knew almost on this sort of secret conversation level when I was talking to my teachers, you know, that I could talk to them about those kind of things. Um, which obviously is great in a time when, you know, we've, we're not actually that far away from when Section 28 was, was in place. You know, that shadow is still very much there. And I think for me, going back in as that educator and knowing I can be that, that both figure of confidence and authenticity, um, but equally as well, somebody that students, if they are LGBTQ plus in the school or if they are allies in the school, that they can come and speak to me, you know, for for help or advice and knowing that even if I can't answer the question, I can point them in the right direction, um, you know, because they shouldn't feel like that they can't come and speak to people. You know, that's, that's our job is there first, first and foremost to be an educator, but the second time it's also to be there as someone to rely on, you know, on a, on a sort of a personal level. That's lovely to hear. And we've talked a lot about queer capital recently yeah. um, because, you know, there's this long narrative that it's very difficult to be an LGBT teacher and none of us are trying to pretend it isn't a challenge. However, there is a form of capital that comes with it. And I think what you're saying here demonstrates that not only not only that candidness you have with your groups and that openness, you've got these really strong, powerful relationships. And actually, it sounds like you're making your students into allies as well. And Joseph used the great phrase army of allies a few weeks ago. So you're creating this army of allies. But also recently in your interview, you, 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 it was important to you to address it in the interview. And I think you talked about one of the books that inspired you as a student. Can you tell us a bit about that and also what the conversation was after the interview? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think it's always an interesting point to raise about queer capital because I think it, if it's something that we've got as LGBTQ plus educators, we should use that to our advantage. Um, and one of the great things that happened, uh, just to put into context for everybody, is I had an interview um, at the start of the month for the role, which I've managed to successfully secure. Um, and one of the questions was asking me about what literature inspires you, which, of course, is a question for many English teachers. It can go in many different directions. But for me, my sort of book that I chose was Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda by Becky Arbitale, um, which, of course, is everybody knows it more often now as the movie Love, Simon. But I think the story that was behind that and inspired that I think is so rich um, in raising awareness of what it was like to be an LGBTQ plus teen in a school. It doesn't necessarily matter that it was an American high school. It's just the fact that it was in a school setting um, and there was almost that sort of pressure on hiding who he is um, and not feeling like he could be his most authentic self. And I think that speaks volumes for so many people, even today in 2021, um, you know, about how we need to be, a lot more sort of open and people should feel like they can be their most confident and authentic self. And I remember talking about this in my interview and the head teacher um, said to me afterwards, you know, is this something that really means a lot to you? And I said, yeah, it does. Because this, this and everything about this book about being LGBTQ plus and just being different, um, you know, from the sort of social norms um, is who I am. You know, this is, this is who I am. I am, I, I feel like I am the microcosm of, of difference um, and so, you know, this this is me. And he sort of sort of sat back and took a moment and said, you know, and would this be something that you'd be, you know, interested in working on with the school sort of in, in the future? And I, I remember saying to them, you know, I, I would love to be part of anything to do with the RSE or PSAG curriculum. 
Um, any knowledge that I can bring to the forefront, I would love to do. And I would be proud to be an LGBTQ plus ambassador for this school. And I think for me, it was important to say that because I know that that's not always been the case for schools in having that, um, you know, or having equalities committees or anything like that. And I think if I can do that and if I can bring inspiration and positivity to something which has had such darkness thrown on it in the education sector for as long as I can remember, you know, then what a better world we can be. We're both a bit speechless after that, Scott. What an amazing opportunity you are such a great role model and that's clear from the way you've spoken about the impact you've had at your, in your school in just a short time can you also tell us a bit about the research project you did recently for the skip because in terms of what you would like to do next and the impact the massive impact you're going to continue to have at your school I think this research project plays quite nicely into that yeah definitely so one of the great things we've had as part of the skit was to be able to sort of have this opportunity to really sort of come into our own and choosing a topic that sort of we're able to explore more on a personal level as well as an educational. So I was lucky enough to be able to be assigned to the diversity, equality and inclusion project. Um, so there was myself and three other individuals who all looked at um, different areas within education, more specifically our curriculums. So there is an art trainee, um, two English trainees, including myself and a drama trainee. And so we all decided to look at the split between race and sexuality within the curriculum. Um, and I was so proud of our group for how much sort of depth and research we were all able to go away and gather, especially some of the sort of shocking statistics, really, um, especially, for example, uh, the English trainee who was working with me, um, who worked on race, was, was getting statistics from the director of education at Nottingham City Council. Um, you know, and was able to sort of pluck out the fact that actually we're very much near to a 50-50 split between white and non-white students um, in Nottingham, which I think is a, actually quite a shocking statistic because you would not think that. Um, but equally as well, when you sort of look at curriculums, and this is, it doesn't matter whichever school this is, um, you know, when you look at curriculums, I think you almost have to sit there and look and think, well, actually, how much, how much of our curriculum actually represents our students? Um, and I remember there was a poll that was conducted uh, for secondary school students, and it was around 72, 73% the students said that they did not feel represented within their own curriculum, um, which I think both is, again, a shocking statistic, but equally I can sort of see why, because we've, we've got this sort of literary heritage um, and we've got this sort of heritage of subjects which are almost white and heterosexually dominated. So it's sort of thinking about, well, how can we, how can we make it balanced? So not necessarily slashing it and taking all of it out and starting again, but how can we edit and tweak things to allow for a much more fair, uh, much more relevant and a much more cultured curriculum. Um, so that was one of the things that was really sort of at the heart of the project and what we wanted to do. Um, and we, we luckily had the chance to present it to everybody uh, at Skip, which would have been, I think, about how many weeks would have been? About three weeks. Yeah, it was about three weeks. It was, it was I think, literally two days after my interview um, at the school I was at. Um, I went down to, to do the project so it was it was a lovely day and I think one of the great things that came out of all the projects is just shows how much our passions for these subjects shine through. They did come through in spades it was amazing and also what was funny and I said this to Joseph before your stand-up comedy um, skills came through in that presentation because what you you know you were dealing with quite heavy content which is brilliant but the way in which you delivered it made it accessible and fun but hard-hitting and that was amazing to see um, and you're shortchanging yourself here because actually the marketing you did around it was quite incredible so I think it's only fair that you share the acronym and some of the props that you used as well. Oh definitely yeah so 
we basically based it on the on the concept of sword, which of course is straight white, old, rich, dead. Um, so basically, seeing so whereabouts in the curriculum are we seeing sword across art, English, and drama? Um, and we loved this whole thing of, of coming up with it, and actually, you know, the whole idea of pulling the sword from the Stone Age curriculum. Um, I think is something that will always stick with me in my heart, and the fact that our art trainee, who's a brilliant artist, um, and I know Adam can say this as well because he's got a copy of it, um, drew us a lovely graphic um, of a sword um, within the ground, and you know, had based it with sort of the rainbow, the pride and progress colours. I just loved that. I just loved everything about it. I think it just added another level. Um, I think. <laughs> one of the little things I always like as well I'm, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to things like powerpoints um it's just little different things that you can do and so part of my um particular role was looking at the hidden curriculum especially with regards to English and I remember making a certain point about saying curtains to the curriculum um at which point I actually had a little transition which made the screen part like a set of curtains <laughs> and, I, and it was just the sort of the, the quirkiness I think both showed <laughs> Hey, I who mean, I am, but yeah. People clapped after it. It was so clever. <laughs> and Sally, who works at the skit, still talks about it now. So that shows the impact that it had. Pulling the sword out of the Stone Age. It's, 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 anyone that knows me knows that I, I live for a pun. Like, wordplay is my play. And that's just so clever. And it makes so much sense. And I, I wish the people listening to this right now could see you've just pulled the sword. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, literally, I've literally got the sword. We... Uh, Nadia, who's a part of our group, went and got us these swords. Um, I was half tempted to paint it in rainbow colours, I'll be completely honest. But yeah, when we, when we got them, we were like, right, so we've all got our swords now, so we could pull the sword from the Stone Age curriculum and, you know, fight against it. Um, so I feel like I'm doing a little bit of improvisation work now. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great, though, that you're you're engaging with those kind of conversations so early on in your career, because... The, the the idea of um of diversifying the curriculum is is so important i kind of i spend so much of my time reading about I, I spend so much of my time getting annoyed about the queer people i wasn't taught about in school as i as i read more and i, I learn about these brilliant stories of amazing people and i think that wh why do i am i am i 26 years old hearing this for the first time Be particularly and i think particularly within the within the kind of um LGBTQ community, particularly around trans and non-binary people, yeah. because so much of what we hear all the time in the media, and you know, I'm thinking Piers Morgan, is that this is a new trendy thing. This is a new, new, new language, new ideas, and 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 yes, the language is new, but the pe the people aren't. Um, there are there are brilliant stories of trans and non-binary people that stretch far back in history and geographically stretch across the world as well. These people have always existed and, and have done incredible things and lived incredible lives. And I think it is part of our job as educators to look for the opportunities where we can talk about these people in school. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think one of the great things, um, you know, I mean, we've, we've had shows such as uh, Queer Eye, for example, which obviously introduces us to five particular individuals who are all gay. Um, but equally having having programs like that and even you know RuPaul's Drag Race I think is has opened up a lot of stories um, about particular individuals regardless of whether they were gay men or gay men who have actually come to the realization that they are they are women you know they are they are transgender women um, and sort of seeing that story I think that sort of authentic touch really allows us as people 
to identify with them on some sort of level and it really sort of strikes strikes at the core so i think it's it's important that we can have those discussions and i think one of the things i've looked at in my project as well is that i remember for as long as i've been reading shakespeare that shakespeare to me um has never always been what you'd consider straight um and I think and it always makes me laugh because there's always a reference in a Doc 2 episode. I'm a massive Doc 2 nerd, so of course I'm going to throw these references at you now. <laughs> um, there's a lovely reference to a Doc 2 episode with David Tennant called The Shakespeare Code, um, of course, written by Rusty Davis. Um, and there was a moment where they were talking about sharing a kiss. And I remember William Shakespeare saying something to the doctor about, oh, does that apply to you as well, doctor? And he just turned around and said, oh, 57 academics have just punched the air. And I thought, brilliant. Like, this is just a perfect line. And it just confirmed, you know, the majority of what I was thinking about. But again, this is something that is not discussed when you think about Romeo and Juliet, A Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, Twelfth Night Macbeth, anything along the sort of the spectrum with, with Macbeth, um, at Shakespeare, should I say. Called him Macbeth, um, you know, Shakespeare is not as widely discussed, and I think that's something that we need to be bringing to the forefront of the classroom. I mean, I only actually found out during exploration, I think it was actually during LGBT um, History Month in February this year, um, that Wilfred Owen um, was actually part of the LGBTQ plus community as well. That's something I never knew, and it actually sparked a good idea for me thinking that, right, well, as soon as I know that I've secured a job, I can start to think about well, what can I do to raise awareness, not both on just a curriculum level, but also in how things are sort of out there. So one of the things I want to do when I first get my classroom is to have a pride and progress in literature display um, and actually having a look at those sort of key figures uh, within the LGBTQ plus and equally as well for the AME um, representatives as well. That's really um, timely, actually, because we had a conversation a few weeks ago with Curran and he talked about how the curriculum is quite gay, but it needs to be revealed. Like you're yeah. not, you know, because you, these are the authors we're talking about and the literature you're talking about. Those things are already on the curriculum, but these important aspects of their lives are just, you know, silenced. So all you're doing is revealing them. It's not like you're crowbarring things in unnecessarily. Yeah, exactly. And it is literally like almost there is a curtain. And I think, you know, when we say curtains to the curriculum, it's literally allowing those people to actually be seen for who they actually are. Um, you know, and I know there are individuals individuals that will be out there that are part of the LGBTQ plus community that maybe don't want it being highlighted um, that they are part of the community but I think it's it's more so in a sense that we don't just focus on the fact that they are LGBTQ plus but actually you know they're they are an amazing writer poet artist performer scientist mathematician sports star whoever it is who also is part of the LGBTQ plus community so if you're sitting there as an LGBTQ plus person regardless of whether you are young old or in between you know there are amazing role models out there these are doing amazing work and that means that you can too you know that that shouldn't stop you or for a second make you think that just because you're LGBTQ plus that the story stops here it doesn't you know the journey continues it's been great to listen to the examples you've given today, Scott, and I think it's going to be really helpful for other trainee teachers to listen to how you've approached uh, being an LGBTQ plus teacher in the classroom and how fantastically and positively you've done it. What advice might you give to people that are either about to start their teacher training course or perhaps thinking about joining the profession and perhaps have some apprehension about it? What advice and, and tips might you give them? All I can say is, is that I know how hard it seems from the outside. Um, I think one of the things that has happened over the last year is there's been a lot of conversations about teachers um, and their workload and what they've been doing or what they've not been doing um, you know during the course of the pandemic but I think what you have to understand and realize is, is that this is not a nine-to-five job 
You know, this is something that, that and it will never be a nine to five job because there's at the heart of it is both the sort of the planning and preparation side of things, but ultimately we are there for the kids. We are there for the students because this is about educating tomorrow's adults. You know, it is, it is an important job, uh, but equally it's one of the most rewarding jobs that you can pick up. Um, and that's not to say that any other job that you do is not rewarding because I'm almost sure it is. But this is one of the most awarding jobs when you know when kids are walking outside of that classroom and they are seeing you on the way out and they are saying, thank you, sir, that was really good today. Or thank you so much, I really enjoyed that. Or even students coming up to you and feeling like that they can actually, you know, say to you, sir, I don't know if I might be gay. Just having that and knowing that you can be that person that they can come to, you can be that person that can inspire them, you can be that person that gives them the building blocks to go on to be their most successful self, I think is one of the most rewarding parts of being a teacher for me so if there's any apprehension about doing it I would say get yourself into a school and have a look because if you don't see what it's like and if you don't give it a try at least how will you know you know and I think for those that are joining the profession and that have made that decision that they are definitely going to do this just be confident be organized um, and ask questions if you're unsure one of the great things that I've definitely come to learn over the last year is I'm such a perfectionist, it's unreal. Um, and I think sometimes it's just learning that you can give your 100% and still be the best. You do not need to overexert yourself. You do not need to overexhaust yourself. If you are struggling with something, ask for help. That is not a weakness. You are not admitting defeat by asking those questions or raising those concerns that you want to be the best okay and that's 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 important that's important i felt so supported by both the skit um you know by adam by sally um by Bromley, my mentor you know by the school that i'm with now my amazing faculty um you know and the head teacher i'm now going to be working for i have never felt so supported by people um in my careers as much as i have in the teaching profession and i think that's important for you to know is that you are not on your own um especially coming into this covid year it almost reasserted everything for everybody and everybody was almost back at step one even those that have been in the profession for 15 20 plus years we were all on the same page because this was a new era for education and i think that's important to know is that you were never going to be on your own with that talk to other trainees you know link up together if you're all in different cohorts get yourself a whatsapp group going you know talk to each other about things never suffer in silence and and just go out there and smash it because you know the world needs great teachers and that's what we are i wish that more people talked so positively and hopefully about education um adam i feel like next year when you have your new teacher trainers you can just play that clip to them on the first day there i was literally just thinking the same thing like that <laughs> needs to be heard by every trainee teacher applying for the program amazing i got goosebumps as you said that scott but I remember, I remember when I told people I'm going to train to be a teacher. I've, I've, I'm going to, I'm going to do that next year. People would say, "Oh wow, oh like that's going to be that's the hardest year of your life. That's a really hard job. Wow, you're going to have no life now. That's you, you have to work so hard." And people would kind of list, and even people who were teachers themselves would lift list off the reasons that I shouldn't be doing it. But actually, it is. It's like you said, such a brilliant and rewarding job. Um, and it, it does feel like more than a job. It's a brilliant and rewarding way just to spend your time and way to spend your life. And I, I wish that people spoke more hopefully and more positively about it in the way that you just did. Thank you. 
Yeah, I think it's it's so important because you know the the people bog down the profession so much, and I think you know between silly little things in the media, like I know um, you know there was the whole thing about the tattooed head teacher, um, you know, and especially with the pandemic about people saying, "Oh, well, teachers, teachers haven't been doing anything during the pandemic; they've just been sat in the back garden drinking cocktails," which you know might have been the case, but not at the time when they actually need to work. You know, a lot of people seem to forget that, as I've said, teaching is not a nine to five profession. We don't come in, pick up what we need to at nine o'clock and then just drop it at five o'clock and go home. Some of these things will stay with us for as early as five or six in the morning to eight or nine o'clock at night. And I think it's important that people and people do realise that. And there is such an appreciation for teachers. But equally, there are still individuals out there, I think, that just don't seem to get what it is and what it means to be a teacher. Um, and it's, it's a lot more than just what goes on inside the classroom is actually what exists outside too. It's interesting that you mentioned about the tattooed head teacher. I've, I've been really questioning recently kind of the standard of professionalism and what's expected of different groups of people in how they present themselves um, in a professional setting, particularly within education. When I first started as a teacher, I found myself wearing a tie and a shirt and sometimes a suit, even though that's really not how I express myself or, or how I kind of see myself. But that's how I'd always seen teachers, right? So every teacher I'd ever seen looked like that. Um, so I, I just fit that mould because I felt as if that was what I had to do in order to be deemed as a professional. Um, and more recently, I've been really questioning that and I always have my nails painted outside of school and normally I take that off before I go to school. But recently I, I, I kind of questioned why are you taking that off in order to go into school? And I couldn't find a good enough answer. So I didn't. And I went to school with my nails painted and the children in my class said, your nails look great. And I said, don't they? And, and that was the end of the conversation. Um, but I think there's something interesting about what is expected around professionalism within education. And I feel like often that comes from, um, it comes from classism often, it comes from sexism, it comes from homophobia, um, often it comes from fat shaming as well. There's so many things that feed into what is deemed as professional and what is seen as an acceptable thing for a teacher to wear that almost often force teachers and people working in education into these molds of, of professionalism. Um, have you ever, as a new kind of teacher stepping into education, did you ever feel that kind of pressure around around how you could ex should express yourself professionally? Definitely, yeah. I think it's one of the questions that I raised myself really going into uh, the training year was thinking, oh, well, how, what do I need to be doing? How should I be presenting myself? Like, how do I look? How do I look professional sort of in the teaching workplace? Because I've always sort of had this, very individual style I suppose when it comes to my dress code in the workplace even sort of as a manager I would, I would always be that person with um you know the roll neck jumper and sort of I have like a nice sort of uh, shirt uh, sleeveless waterfall cardigan that I like to put on as well and it's just simple little things like that that sort of deviate from this sense of um you know the what is it what is what does a male teacher look like um, and I think it's like you were saying, Joseph, as well, it's, it's almost that sense of, well, why why should I not dress this way? Like, why why should I not do that? And I think if you can't come up with a good enough reason, then go for it in that sense, you know? Um, 
I'm a very much an advocate for trying to deviate from the shirt tie and suited and booted sort of sense. I mean, Adam will know when he came to observe me last week, I had a, a blue roll neck jumper on with, um, you know, with like this blue sort of patterned um, blazer and trousers, which, you know, deviates from that what's expected of a male teacher, but still sort of almost conforms to that. Uh, whereas uh, equally as well, I sort of have shirts like this, for example, um, and, you know, and, and different prints, which if there was then put on underneath a blazer, which again, you know, it doesn't seem like, or it looks to not be professional, but actually it is because you are still presenting as smart, but equally as well, you are allowing your expressiveness to come through. And I think that's, that's so important as well in allowing students to see who you are. Um, and why not? Why not wear male varnish you know why not wear um you know a particular piece of jewelry as long as it's appropriate you know within within school code you know and that you're not gonna get any sort of backlash from students saying oh well you're wearing it so why can't i you know and it's, it's simple things like that i think as long as you are as long as you are staying within that line but equally you're going against what's expected if that makes sense because i feel like there's a there's a there's a big issue really about what can we be expected to wear I mean I always think about this from the perspective of of non-binary colleagues and if they wanted to present as you know as a different part of of the gender spectrum like where do they sit in regards to the uniform policy like if they wanted to present as more feminine like how do they go about that then with the policy or if you want to present more masculine how do they go about that you know I think it's something that as educators and particularly um with senior leaders I think it's something that needs to be looked at when it comes to sort of staff dress code and making sure that actually, you know, if we wanted to present ourselves like this, that it's not a case of looking unprofessional. If you've got tattoos, it doesn't make you look unprofessional. Actually, it can make you seem quite cultured um, because you've you've been out there, you know, you've been out there and you've experienced life. And if anything, the students are, are going to be more sort of sold on you as a teacher um, as opposed to, you know, you covering yourself up and hiding yourself away. Anyone who's interested in that kind of conversation about challenging unequal dress codes in school, I'd really recommend following Adam Levick on Twitter um, at underscore Mr. Levick. Um, talks quite a lot about this on Twitter and, and, and about that idea of, of challenging unequal dress codes. Yeah, definitely. I think it's simple things as well. Like I have, I have a few pair of, um, of Cuban heels as well, which, you know, sort of gives me a little bit of sort of, not only sort of raises the height a little bit, I mean, I'm already tall anyway, but equally as well, it almost gives me a little bit of confidence in the workplace because I'm not that typical straight, you know, white man who's going through school wearing these sort of suit and smart shoes, you know, like I can still be smart and present as a, you know, as a, as a good teacher. Like, I don't think that takes away from being a good teacher. In what we wear because we've talked during this about you inspiring the students actually scott but you've really made me think about this as well because this is one of the first conversations we had last year when we when you started at the skit you were talking about you know sadly there's a very narrow parameters of shirt suit and tie for men and you know whatever women wear is professional it's a bit more opaque isn't it sometimes and yeah. you sort of said well actually i'm going to dress smart but dress in this way and seeing the way you dress in school like you say highly professional but actually you're very gently disrupting those norms which is brilliant because i did the induction the other day for the new trainees and I was trying to be very careful not to ascribe sort of men and women's clothes. And it's very difficult to do, but I think the language around professional dress is better rather than saying men should wear this, women should wear this, but more importantly, this is what a teacher should look like. Yeah, exactly. I think it is, I think the the women's dress code um, for female colleagues is, is a lot more, not so much fluid, um, but they almost do get a little bit more expressiveness. And that's not their fault. That's just what has come part and parcel of the policy. 
I think it's just something that we need to be aware of, really. Um, as and this is more so for for senior leaders is is how can we make that a little bit more not not appropriate, but maybe a bit more fair, yeah. perhaps for for male colleagues too, um, and particularly also like I say, considering non-binary colleagues. Scott, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you this morning. And actually, I've been quite in awe of you. Obviously, I've known you all year, but just to hear your, about your experiences and the impact you've had. And obviously, I've seen some of that when I've come into school, but some of those stories you've shared have been really inspirational. So thank you for sharing that with those with us this morning. Uh, I know you listen to this podcast, so the last question won't surprise you. Uh, and therefore, what is the best thing about being an LGBT teacher? Oh, the best thing about being an LGBT teacher um, is knowing that I can be my most authentic self um, and knowing that students can look at me and if they are someone who wants to be lgbtq plus or even just to be an ally um is to know that walking into my classroom they've got a safe space where they can be their most authentic self and they do not have to have any apologies about that at all i think that's that's something that will will sit with me in my gay little heart to the day i die Scott, thank you so much for your time today. I know Adam already knew you, but I've not, I've not met you until today. And I, I genuinely am inspired by everything that you've said, particularly to, at this point in your career. When Adam and I first spoke about doing this podcast, we talked about it being a positive conversation and being able to, being able to share the experiences and the stories of LGBTQ teachers. And for me, kind of you are what I want this podcast to be. It's, it's you're a positive conversation. You're a positive person. You're a hopeful person. And you are pride, you are progress. And for me, you are a symbol of what is changing in education and where we need to go in the future. Thank you, thank you. It's, it's been lovely to actually listen to the many different stories, you know, but there's so many different colleagues, both LGBTQ plus and allies. And I've been so inspired listening to them week after week. I think it's almost sort of reasserted to me that what I'm doing is, is the right thing. And even those moments where it has been emotional, and I think I've found myself getting emotional as well in those moments. Um, you know, I, I think it's it has really made me sort of assert that you know what we have had a lot of a lot of shtick along the way, um, but like you say, there's there's so much more room now for progress, and I think we are on such a good positive train moving forward that we need to we need to continue to drive that and disrupt the norm for definite. For me, it, it, in speaking with you today, Scott, has been really a full circle moment because all of the reasons that we've started the podcast, I, I see within you, it's, it's hopeful, it's positive, it's pride, it's progress, but also you listen to the podcast and you've taken ideas from it as well. It feels like um, the perfect conversation for us to kind of end this series on. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's one of the things I will always continue to be inspired by other LGBTQ plus educators and allies as well. I think it's, it's one of those interesting conversations, even just simple things like being asked in an interview, if you want to be a part of something going forward to help make a school much more diverse and an equal place is something that we would not have had, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I think the, the sooner that we can all make that progress and continue to move forward, you know, what a better world we'll be living in. So thank you both. I know I said it already in the podcast, but that conversation was exactly what I wanted this podcast to be the whole way through. A positive and hopeful conversation about pride and about progress and about how we can change our educational spaces to make them more inclusive, to make them more diverse and to make them more equitable.
yeah, it's been really nice to have a positive voice from a trainee teacher as well, because like we said, a lot of people feel quite um, cautious about going into the profession of their LGBTQ. But as Scott has so beautifully articulated, there's enormous power in that and there's enormous opportunity in that. And more importantly, you can go home at the end of the day and sense you've done something really, really valuable. Like teaching is rewarding in its own way anyway, but to be a queer teacher and provide that representation, particularly that you didn't have as a young person, that's amazing. And incredible to be doing it in the same space as well, because we talk about making our educational spaces more inclusive, but he's making literally the same space that he was educated in a more inclusive space for the children in it now. So Joseph, we said there that this is the final episode. It is our final interview of the series, but we're going to do something a little bit different next week to wrap up the series and to finish it off. We're going to invite back our first guest, which was George White. You can join us next week on Pride and Progress, where the brilliant George will be interviewing us. Yes, next week, George will be taking over the show and interviewing us. Adam and I both agree that we are both entirely less interesting than all of the people we've interviewed on this podcast. Definitely. <laughs> I'm excited to be able to share a little bit of our story and to reflect on this series of conversations that we've put together. Absolutely. See you then. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd be really grateful if you could leave a review or a five-star rating. This really helps other educators to find these stories. If you want to continue the conversation or comment on this week's episode, you can find us on Twitter at Pride Progress. Thanks for listening.